After that, I am tempted to put away my sermon text and we can all go home. But I won't. Unitarian Universalism and Christianity have a relationship that's complicated. Our movement descends from Protestant Christianity. Indeed, many people assume we are Protestant Christians, like Congregationalists or Methodists. We call ourselves a church, a term associated with Christianity. Our worship resembles Protestant worship, hymns, readings, offertory, sermon. Open beneath my sermon text right now is a huge Bible that has been here since Easter 1897. But we are not a Christian church. We are not bound by creed but called to love and service. We are theists and atheists, Buddhists and humanists, pagans and agnostics, seekers of every stripe, including Christian. Some of us arrive here in voluntary exile from Christian denominations, some still angry at how we were raised or mistreated or how Christian institutions have failed us or failed the world. Some are nostalgic for the Christian story and liturgy and music. Some feel all these things at the same time. In some of us, the name of Christ invokes a warm upwelling of love and transcendence in others indifference, in others curiosity, in others a kind of post-traumatic stress. It's sometimes said, not entirely in jest, that Unitarian Universalists honor all faiths except Christianity. That the only time you hear the name Jesus Christ in a UU church is when the sexton falls down the stairs. That for us, Easter is when Jesus comes out of his tomb and if he sees his shadow, he goes back in and we get six more weeks of winter. Some Unitarian Universalists go so far as to dismiss Christianity as a crutch for those who can't handle reality, people who want easy answers to hard questions. Now, it's true that Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But anyone who takes seriously the teachings of Jesus discovers how exacting and how revolutionary they can be. What more difficult demand can there be than to love our enemies? The doctrine of unconditional love was not invented by Jesus. The simplistic contrast between the angry, judgmental God of the so-called Old Testament and the loving, forgiving God of the New is a crude stereotype that deserves both Judaism and Christianity. The Hebrew book of Proverbs counsels, if your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. And if they are thirsty, give them water to drink. Do not rejoice when your enemies fall, and do not let your heart be glad when they stumble. Jesus was not the first to teach love of our enemies, but in the Sermon on the Mount, he lifts it to the pinnacle of perfection. He was not speaking abstractly. His Jewish audience knew well 
who their enemy was. They suffered daily under the boot of the Roman occupiers. They nourished grudges against other tribes, ethnicities, bloodlines, individuals, grudges grounded in intolerable injury, theft, rape, murder, oppression. Jesus doesn't care how outrageous the offense or how deep the wound. Love your enemies, he says, and pray for those who persecute you. Well, that's asking a little much, isn't it? Couldn't we just agree not to hurt anybody and, and act in a loving way, whatever hateful thoughts might lurk unspoken in our minds? Unfortunately, Jesus has already made it clear earlier in his sermon that he's concerned with not just conduct, but consciousness. He likens anger to murder and lust to adultery. He is calling for a change of heart. He offers no reasons, only the model of God's perfection. He tells us to love our enemies so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For Christians, that's reason enough. Christians want to be like Christ, children of the Heavenly Father. Many of us here this morning don't believe in a Heavenly Father or find the phrase so misleading and problematic that we use others. For those of us for whom Christ's command is not enough, why should we? love our enemy. It's so hard. Why should we even try? No one has answered this question more eloquently nor lived the answer more powerfully than Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King believed at the core of his being that Jesus' command to love our enemies was not pie-in-the-sky utopianism but the most practical strategy for change and an absolute necessity for survival. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, King said, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. Dr. King knew that the destructiveness of hatred is personal as well as political. When we traffic in hatred, we pay a terrible toll in the soul. We who fight the good fight for peace and justice may believe that hatred can feed us on our long journey through the desert. 
but hatred feeds upon us. It corrodes our hearts and weakens our will, making us vulnerable to disappointments and defeats only love can overcome. Ralph Waldo Emerson observed that we are what we think about all day. When we think hate, we become hate. When we hate our enemies, we lose the opportunity to touch their hearts and change their minds. Movements for peace and justice will succeed not by overpowering our opponents, but by transforming them. The people of India could not match the military might of the British Empire. They achieved their liberation by love. The civil rights movement could not overcome by force the dogs and hoses and guns arrayed against them. They overcame by love. Love is the only force, said Dr. King, capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. But how? How do we love our enemies? How do we stop or transmute the bile that rises in our gut when we see the damage they do? Dr. King suggested three ways to do this. First, we need to remember that our enemies are more than their misdeeds. In King's words, that there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. Loving our enemies does not require that we like them, that we agree with them, or even that we respect them. It requires that we affirm their inherent worth and dignity. It requires that we see them as, in Jesus' words, children of God, who makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Loving our enemies challenges us to look deeply until we recognize in them our own imperfections, our pride, our prejudice, our ignorance, our selfishness, our impatience, our fear. These qualities play out more destructively in some than in others, but they are universal human traits. While we seek to restrain and prevent the destruction they unleash, let us not pretend that we are immune to them, nor superior to those in the grip of their addiction. Second, Dr. King said we must not seek to humiliate our enemies, nor even to defeat them. Every word and deed, he said, must contribute to an understanding with the enemy and release those vast reservoirs of goodwill which have been blocked by impenetrable walls of hate. Third, Dr. King said, we must forgive. To forgive is not to deny, nor to condone, nor to excuse, nor to enable. To forgive is to let go, to free ourselves from the bondage of hatred. 
And I would add a fourth way to love our enemies, and that is to abstain from ridiculing them, even amongst ourselves. The superficial satisfaction of mocking our enemies simply confirms our fear of their power and reinforces it. Our disdain for them demeans us. For me, as a climate justice activist, among my most fearsome enemies are the notorious Koch brothers, Charles and David, who spend billions of dollars supporting climate denial, opposing renewable energy, gutting environmental regulation, and subverting democracy through secret campaign contributions. I have demonstrated outside WGBH, demanding the ouster of David Koch from the WGBH board. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, declared Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And so, last summer, I read Sons of Wichita, how the Koch brothers became America's most powerful and private dynasty by Daniel Shulman, senior editor at Mother Jones magazine. In this 400-page history of the Koch empire, I learned about the brothers' driven and domineering father, Fred, one of the founders of the John Birch Society, who indoctrinated his sons not only in anti-communism, but also in fierce opposition to any and all government regulation. The old man told his sons if they didn't have successful careers, they'd be worthless, a disgrace to the family. I learned about the oldest Koch brother, Frederick, a gay man so deeply closeted he still does not publicly acknowledge his sexual orientation. I learned how, despite his tearful entreaties, Charles Koch was shipped off the boarding school at age 11. I learned how, even as young as six years old, when twins David and Bill quarreled, they were told to put on boxing gloves and fight it out. In middle school, Bill pulled a butcher knife on David and had to be talked down. Author Shulman calls it a Lord of the Flies-like childhood. I learned how fratricidal lawsuits between Charles and David Koch on one side and Bill and Frederick on the other drove their widowed mother to tears. When Bill and Frederick added their mother as a defendant in their litigation, she suffered a stroke. They subpoenaed her to testify anyway. She died the following year. At the funeral, Charles refused to shake hands with his younger brother, Bill. For all their wealth and power, I would not trade my life for the Koch brothers in a million years. Had I grown up in their family, I'd almost certainly be a Koch brother, too, cut from the same cloth, with the same competitive obsession, the same free market ideology, and the same zeal to spread it. All this backstory does not excuse the Koch brothers' misdeeds. Compassion is not inconsistent with accountability. Personally, I think Charles and David Koch belong in jail for crimes against the climate 
and I hope to live long enough to see them there. Politically, my job is to stop them. Spiritually, my job is to love them. Life is too precious to squander on hatred. Let us find a way to love. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.